Hi, this is Andrew Phillips. Thank you for downloading the Gramier Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions or if you'd like to contact us, check out our website at gramier.com. We'd also love for you to visit with us in a worship service. You're always welcome at Gramier Church of Christ. Our scripture reading this morning will be from the book of Matthew, chapter 20, and verses 20 through 28. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant, and whoever desires to be the first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. How do you determine whether or not someone is important? How do you make that assessment when you see someone? Is it because of maybe the bearing that they have? Maybe they carry themselves a certain way? Uh, Maybe it's due to the clothes that they're wearing or there's something about their appearance where you think "This, this must be an important person. Or does it have to do with their position, their influence? their authority. A lot of times we assume someone is important if they're in charge of a lot of different people. If someone is a supervisor or someone's in a position where you're over a lot of people, then you're evidently important and the more people you're over, sort of the more importance you have. In fact, I read this week that there are currently over a hundred servants that work for the British royal family. One of the ways that you know that uh, this family is important in that country is because there are people that serve them. Over the years, when the president has traveled uh, from our country to other countries, uh, there are typically a large group of attendants that go with him, a kind of a presidential entourage. There are times when traveling to different countries, there have been over a thousand people that were either preparing the way for or accompanying the president. So how important is this individual? Well, there are a thousand people that are preparing the way. There are some companies who have 
hundreds of thousands, even millions of employees. And so if you're the CEO of that company, then you have a great deal of authority, a lot of people under you. We often see celebrities hear about musicians, actors, sports uh, figures that have an entourage around them. In fact, here are some of the known jobs of members of a celebrity's entourage. Uh, One celebrity was described as having a person whose only job was to hold his pizza and Diet Coke when he wasn't using it. Can you imagine having someone just to hold your pizza and Diet Coke? Uh, One had an umbrella holder that was just there to hold the umbrella as they walked. Another had one of his entourage serve as a battery changer. So any TV remote in his household, any video game controller was always going to have fresh batteries because there was someone whose sole job it was to make sure the batteries didn't run out. And so we often think this person must be pretty impressive, pretty important if there's someone working for them just to do this one specific task. We're in a world that does seem to be impressed with position and impressed with authority. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in Scripture, Jesus gives an entirely different, a counter-cultural idea of who's really important. In the passage that Ronnie just read for us, we're reminded that importance, uh, one's success spiritually, is not based on how many people serve us, but on how many people we serve. That's a completely different way of looking at success. That it's not about how many servants that I accumulate, how many people I'm in charge of. When I say do this, how many people are going to respond? Jesus says, instead, I need to be focused on the number of people that I'm serving. Who am I reaching out to? Who is it that I'm submitting myself to for the betterment of that person? I mentioned last week that we're starting a new series that we're thinking of just simply as identity issues. Uh, We are struggling as a culture with individual identities, and sometimes we even struggle collectively. What is the church's identity? Who are we? And so we began by thinking about the definition for what it means to be a Christian, those who have decided to be buried with Christ in baptism and united in his resurrection. The resurrected tomb changes our identity. When we are Christians, children of God, now our whole viewpoint on life is different. And in the next several weeks, we're going to look at some issues that can be pretty controversial. We're going to be thinking about what do we do in a world where there's so much confusion about what marriage should look like, what family should look like. How do we share God's truth with that world? How do we share God's truth about his plan for human beings, about his plan for sexuality, about God's plan for gender. In a world that seems so confused and struggling with so many things, how do we do that truthfully? How do we share God's word, God's plan about purity, about living a pure and holy life in a world that doesn't seem that interested in it? And before we get to those controversial issues, before we deal with that, we have to build the foundation of understanding where our identity comes from. Not only is who we are defined by Christ and our baptism with Him, our union with Him in baptism and in His resurrection, but it's also defined by how Christ calls us to live. And so we've read that passage already from Matthew's account 
But I'd like for us to turn over to the Gospel of Mark. Because when we think about the Gospel of Mark, the characteristic that we consistently see in Jesus is that of a servant. Uh, And it's not a leadership strategy like maybe we might be tempted to think of it. Like, okay, if if you want to really effectively lead people, you know, be a servant. Sort of act like a servant around those you work who work for you and you'll sort of impress them. It's it's not a strategy. Jesus has called us to that identity. That this is who we are in Christ. If I if I have become a child of God, now I'm called to live a life of service. And you may remember that when we went through the Gospel of Mark a couple of years ago, we shared uh, this visual from Walk Through the Bible. Uh, we've shared it before with our children, and so I'm, I'm sharing it again just to help us remember. There's a series of these pictures that helps you remember a book of the Bible and the theme of the Bible. So you have here a big boat. You might call it an ark with an M on it. It's an M ark. So that reminds us of Mark. We're with me. This is, th- this is what I respond to. I like these things that make it simple. So it's, it's Mark. Here you've got that's a and then look at what we've got here. We've got a servant serving an ant to an anteater. What is he doing? He's serving an ant, right? Servant. So when we think of the Gospel of Mark, we think of Jesus as a servant. Now I know this picture is kind of silly and a little bit cheesy, but I also know that there will be some people that in the future, when they think of the Gospel of Mark, and I say, What's Mark about? you're going to remember a guy holding an ant on a plate and say, I think it's servant. I think that has to do with that. So let's, let's get this in our mind because there are several times in Mark's gospel where Jesus has to remind his apostles of his mission and of their mission. And so we're going to start in Mark chapter 9 asking this question, how do we develop this heart of service? If this is who I'm called to be, a servant, and it's not just an outward thing that I'm supposed to take on, but it's supposed to really transform who I am, how do I develop a heart of service? We're going to start in Mark chapter 9. And notice what happens in verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. It's interesting to see the choice that Jesus is calling his apostles to make if they're really going to develop a heart of service. It's deciding to choose service over status. If I want to develop a heart of service, I have to stop thinking about status and start thinking about service to God. Now, this is one of those times in Mark where Jesus has said what his mission is going to be. In the verses preceding that, he had described the death of and then his resurrection. And so you can imagine the confusion that that would have caused. You can imagine the the apostles trying to understand this. They still don't completely understand everything about it. They're not sure what's going to happen. And so you can imagine how discussion after that is, did did you understand what he was saying? Did did I I understand that he's not going to be here? And then that just 
gradually transitions into, well, if he's gone, then who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to have the position? Right now, it's clear who has that position. But isn't that human nature? To try to anticipate what's going to happen? And once I've anticipated that, well, who's really going to be the one in charge? Could it be me? And I just doubt, even though we don't know a lot about their argument, I just have doubts in my mind that Peter was saying to John, you know what, you're the greatest. And John was saying to Peter, no, I think you're the greatest. Like, I I don't think it was that kind of argument. I think some of them were trying to decide, well, what's my position going to be? If there's a kingdom that's going to be here, and if Jesus isn't going to be here, if he's going to be gone, then where, where am I going to stack up? Where's my status going to be? I've invested so much time in this ministry. I've left everything to follow him. So what am I going to end up with? That's human nature, isn't it? To be so concerned with status. There are a lot of decisions we make that are designed to communicate what our status is. It seems implicit in most advertisements we see, whatever the product is, the idea is if you have this, if you wear this, if you drive this, people will know you're a certain kind of person, right? It's an appeal to our status. We, we want you to have this because we know that your status matters to you and how you stack up and how you look on social media and how others regard you. And Jesus says, you're so caught up in status, you've missed the point. And so then he takes a child And we know that small children have maturing to do. And Jesus doesn't call us to be childish, but childlike. One author that I read this week said, children were not prized back then, but tolerated. In other words, Jesus isn't holding up someone who has the highest level of status in that time period. He holds them up. And as we imagine Jesus saying these words, we know that The New Testament is written in Greek, but that the spoken language of Jesus and the apostles was possibly Aramaic. And in Aramaic, the term for servant and for child is is the same terminology. And so it may be kind of a play on words here from Jesus' perspective. But he's saying instead of worrying about status, worry about service. Are you taking care of the lowest level status member in this culture? What matters more to me? That's a question that's worth asking this morning. If I'm looking at my life, am I more concerned with who I'm serving or am I more concerned with what people think my status is, who people think I'm associated with, who people think approve of me? It's a real challenge that existed even in the first century. And so we see this principle that Jesus points out in verse 35. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be the last of all and servant of all. And that same principle shows up in the next chapter. So if you're in Mark chapter 9, let's turn back to Mark chapter 10 as we continue to read. Uh, Mark chapter 10 tells us about someone who comes to Jesus, a man who has all the qualifications for being an influential disciple. The rich young ruler shows up. And the rich young ruler, I don't know about you, but makes me a little uncomfortable. Because here's someone who looks like everything's going well for him. He has everything you can imagine someone would want. He's got possessions. He's got influence. And he tells Jesus that he's kept the laws of God from his youth. So he's a good person. 
And Jesus looks at him and loves him, but says there's one thing that you lack. He pinpoints the fact that this individual wasn't willing to put his faith in God and service to Jesus above the concern he has for his possessions. And so he walks away sad. And then Jesus makes this statement that must have startled the apostles about how hard it was for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And it's in that context that Peter says in verse 28, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. And here's that principle again. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now we can imagine how shaken the apostles would have been when they've heard about Jesus' future, about what's going to happen with the death and the resurrection. But in the rich young ruler, they're seeing a glimpse of their own future. Here's someone who would have looked like a person. It would have been easy to assume that God is blessing him because he seemed to have it all. And don't we still have that same kind of temptation? Isn't it easy for us to assume someone who is successful in business or successful in life, uh, we could just sort of assume, man, they must have it all together. They must be doing exactly what they're supposed to do. God's really blessing them. And because of that blessing, maybe if we don't have as much, we feel like maybe we're not as faithful, maybe we're not as good, we haven't been blessed as much. But Jesus says when it comes to a heart of service, we're choosing long-term over short-term. We're not thinking about what it looks like around us. We're thinking about what the future will look like. And so Jesus says it is hard for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. It is difficult. It's a challenge because just like that one individual walked away sorrowful because it was hard for him to see his obligation to serve God beyond the things that he had right in front of him, we have that same tendency. I also think it's worth noting, when I look at the rich young ruler and I think about where we live and, and what we have, the possessions that we have, especially compared to the rest of the world, this can be a challenging text. I just want us to remember that when Jesus looked at the rich young ruler, Mark tells us he looked at him and loved him. That's Jesus' first response. When we come to God, the first response is he looks at us and loves us. Now, we're called to do some things. We're called to submit. We're called to serve him. Those are some serious callings and can be challenges. But the very first response is he loves us. Jesus loved this man. And so even when Peter is asking these questions, I think we can assume the same thing is true. Peter, Jesus looks at Peter. How many times does Peter speak out and Jesus looks and loves him. You know, we could read this as an immature thought of Peter saying, well, you know, we left everything to follow you. Almost like a student in a class that raises his hand and says, well, I got this right, you know, teacher. I know he didn't, but I did. What about me? What am I going to get? But I think maybe another way we could look at it is someone who's heard how challenging it is to enter the kingdom of heaven and is thinking, well, what about me? Am I doing the right thing? Have I done what I'm supposed to do? We've left everything. And Jesus makes sure that no matter what they've given up, what's in the long term is going to be so much more valuable. In fact, 
it's interesting here that Jesus describes how much more they'll receive. Jesus modeled for his apostles and for his followers uh, when they came to him once about his family. And he said, who are my mother, my sisters and brothers? They're those who do the will of my father. That's, that's my mother and sister and brothers. In other words, you might have left home, but you've inherited this family in serving alongside me. And also persecutions. Did you notice that's tucked away in there? You're going to have a lot and some persecutions. And that's certainly going to happen. But in eternity, in the age to come, what an incredible blessing. It's pretty common for us today. It's common knowledge uh, that we don't need to let what we're doing, if we're investing, let what's happening in the short term discourage us from investing in the long term. It's a spiritual principle as well. But then as we continue in Mark chapter 10, in the midst of all this discussion, we have Mark's account of what we read in Matthew, of James and John coming to him. And Matthew gives us the detail of their mother coming to Jesus. Mark gives us the detail that James and John were there. And you notice that even in the Matthew account, they became indignant with James and John. So they're a part of this. This is not just their mother's idea. But in verse 41, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. There's that idea of first and last again. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does it mean for us to cultivate a heart of service? We cultivate a heart by choosing obedience to God over our own dominance in our life or in the, the sphere in which we operate. We, we like to be dominant. We like to describe a powerful sports team is dominating. They were in control of everything. That's what dominance is. You're the one who's controlling things. And Jesus says that's exactly how the Gentiles view leadership. But it isn't this way among you. Instead, you're going to be serving. And this would have been countercultural. And it was countercultural in the sense that Jesus' whole ministry was going against the grain of what people thought. The Pharisees were worried about Jesus because they didn't want to lose their authority. They didn't want to lose their dominance. Herod, early on, when he hears of Jesus' birth, is worried about the threat because he doesn't want to lose his power. But Jesus in his ministry isn't concerned with the limited effects of earthly power. Jesus is concerned with doing the will of his Father. And he models that kind of servanthood, that kind of submission. He describes himself as a ransom for many. Uh, and typically, when we think of a ransom today, we think of uh, a kidnapping and a phone call that we see in the movies, right? You've got to keep them on the line long enough so we can trace the call, and, and we want to find out who it is and what we give them. But when we look at the first century use of this terminology, it was more along the lines of a price that would have been paid for someone who'd been captured in war, a prisoner of war or a slave that had been captured. And Someone has to pay this price. And he says, I am a ransom for many. And this, this would have gone against the grain, not just of the apostles' expectations, but really of all those who were waiting for the Messiah 
instead of a powerful ruler to show up when there's a suffering servant, it would have gotten their attention. In fact, I think it's interesting even to read the way the Jewish encyclopedia would describe the death of Jesus. And this isn't just from that particular perspective. We see this reflected in Scripture. When, when we see Jesus' crucifixion and then the uh, Old Testament cursed is he who hangs on a tree, and, and how did they understand that? The Jewish encyclopedia would say this utterance of, of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? was in all its implications itself a disproof of the exaggerated claims made for him after his death by his disciples. The very form of his punishment would disprove those claims in Jewish eyes. No Messiah that Jews could recognize could suffer such a death. I think that's interesting that that perspective is still evident even in the first century. They're trying to wrap their minds around how the ruler they'd been waiting for, how the Messiah could possibly be a suffering servant. How could he choose to submit to everything that he endured? He gave his life as a ransom for many. And it's a powerful reminder to us that when I'm serving God, it's going to mean I choose things that don't always look like victory and dominance in the short term, but that always look like service to God in the long term. Now, we know that as Jesus gave himself, uh, that's a once-for-all sacrifice. I'm incapable of getting anywhere near the level of sacrifice that Jesus made for all of us, but I am capable of seeking to reflect that spirit of servanthood, of developing a heart of service, of choosing service over status, of thinking long-term instead of short-term, and choosing obedience to God over dominance in the world around me. And as we think about that challenge of service, it changes the way we view the importance of people. A person isn't important when they have a lot of servants a person is important when there's someone I can serve. They're important to me. I value serving them. That changes our perspective. Now, there are a lot of different ways that we can serve and a lot of ways that we can be involved. But I want us to focus as we close this morning on a really important way we can serve and we can be involved. Uh, we're, we're talking about uh, our care groups being reorganized. Maybe you saw the video that we posted on, on Facebook and on YouTube. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to look that up. But it's in the process of being reorganized. We know the importance of sharing meals with those who need them. I know during the, the pandemic and some of the, the quarantine times, there, there would be moments something would be left on our porch, and I know left on your porch by someone else in this church family, that would be so encouraging. That's something that Christians spontaneously do for each other. But in the care groups, we want to organize that so that we can make sure we're getting every need met. And so after our worship this morning, after our final prayer, we're going to have an opportunity to look at some ways that we can serve. So I want you to be thinking about that. Uh, I want you to be asking yourself what you can do to choose service. In a world that constantly calls on us to choose ourselves, how can I choose to cultivate a heart of service that cares for others? I want us to be thinking about that. So right after our final prayer, uh, I'll share some more details, and, and you'll have some things handed out. I, 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 I want us to consider what an incredible opportunity 
God gives us to serve others every day and what we can do as a church family to be people who display a heart of service. Of course, all throughout the passages we've read, we've been reminded of Jesus' sacrifice for us. It may be that you need to respond to the great servant, the one who exemplified submission to death on the cross, not because the physical elements were more powerful, but because his goal was to do the will of the Father and to allow us to have salvation. It may be that you need to become a child of God uh, today. We've, uh, we've already had the chance this week to celebrate uh, this past Sunday with Finn Lassiter putting Christ on in baptism. Uh, we've thought about Olivia Loveless, part of the Loveless uh, family that we love so much putting Christ on in baptism. We'd love to add to that number. If that's an area where we can help you, we'd love to do that. It may be that after this worship time together, you'd like to meet with a couple of our shepherds for prayers. Uh, if you want to go out that doorway, there'll be a couple of our elders who can sit down and talk and pray with you privately. Or it may be something that all of us can help encourage you with. Let's leave here determined to develop that heart of service. If we can help you in any way, please come as we stand, as we sing together.